wonder when Jesus is coming back. Has there ever been a time that maybe we think it's getting real close, like there has been lately? Wow. Have you ever laid your head on your pillow at night and wondered if maybe the next sight you'll see would be the Lord? I love a song that used to be sung, and I haven't sung it in a while, but it talks about just think of waking up in heaven. Hmm. That's going to happen sometime soon. Dear friends, I don't know you, but I hope you're ready. To look out upon your faces today, I would hope that every person here would be ready. Those of you watching on live stream, I hope that you are ready to meet the Lord. That's coming soon. And Jesus is coming soon. And so we have uh, a great expectation and a great hope that things are going to get better very soon for those of us that know Jesus. But for those that don't know Jesus, we need to have a bigger burden and a greater desire to see, get the gospel to them and see them saved. Amen? If you have somebody, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but do you know somebody that's lost? Maybe a mom or a dad, maybe a brother or sister, maybe an aunt or an uncle, a family friend, a neighbor. Has there ever been a time that we ought to be more concerned about their soul than today? Because we have so little time. And uh, people say, well, we've been saying that for years. That's true. But think of the opportunities the Lord's given us to be able to impact more people for the, for the harvest and for the, and for the Lord. And so that, be able to see them saved. It's a great opportunity. Those of us that are Christians and, and are talking about Jesus coming back, we praise the Lord and we, we thank the Lord that one day he's coming soon. But every time I preached about the Lord coming back in our church, all of my people in my church had put their heads down. Because they were normally the only people in their family that were saved. It's kind of hard to be real excited about the Lord coming back if you've got some lost friends. We need to be thinking about them today. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is one of my favorite stories to preach in the area of missions. So much of the Bible helps us to think about the needs of the world. And in John chapter 4, we see the story of Jesus traveling with his disciples. And he must needs go through Samaria, verse number 4 tells us. Jesus lived on purpose. And that's how we ought to live. We ought to live on purpose. He must, he must needs go through Samaria. There were people there that needed to know some things. and People there that needed to meet him and recognize their need of salvation. And that's the way he lived. And what would it be like if we didn't go through our week just as kind of nonchalantly and go through our schedules just like we always do, but that we must, we must go to somebody and talk to them about the Lord. And the Lord is burdened in that way as he goes to Samaria. And we look at verse number 5, and it says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria uh, Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. 
for his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Verse number 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And if we were to go and take the time to go through the rest of this story, you would see Jesus unveiling to her her need of the gift of God. The Bible tells us the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How many of us know the gift of God? Aren't you glad you know about that gift? The Lord has, somebody along our path, has come and told us that there's a gift that God has for us. And you know what? It, it, it's really amazing to me. I think about what would what it be like if we were to offer all of the people that we know, our neighbors, our families, our friends, people in this area. Maybe the pastor would do a promotion here at church and say, everybody that comes is going to get a $100 bill. If they were going to get that kind of a gift, what kind of response would we see? I, I guarantee you this, this auditorium and this building would not hold the people that would come to get a $100 bill, right? But offer somebody eternal life. And there's a, uh, it's kind of like, we can't even quite relate to what that means, but certainly there's, there's far greater need for people to know about the gift of God and eternal life than even getting a $100 bill. And I wish that people could respond to the need and understand that our Lord is providing, and He does have a gift for each person that will receive it. When I was 11 years old, after hearing the gospel many times growing up, I finally understood the gift of God. That he had a gift for me, and that gift was salvation. That gift was something that this world can't offer. That gift was something that is not temporal. It's eternal. And, and God wants to, this lady to know that she needed to know about the gift. If thou knewest, he said to her. And do you recognize that most of the people in the world don't know about Jesus? They don't know him. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is. Two things here that Jesus says that she needs to know about the gift of God, and number two, who it is that's talking to her. She needs to know about Jesus. And he goes through the next few verses, dealing with the subject of the gift, which she never does understand, when he finally tells her that it's going to be of such great value to her that it, it will be something that will change her life, she finally says, okay, give me this water that I don't have to come here to draw. She simply thought it was going to help her life to get easier. She didn't understand that Jesus was, was talking to her about eternal life and something that was going to transform her life. And then he began talking to her about her need. So he, after she didn't un understand, um, in verse number 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus shifts gears into subject number two. First, he talked about the gift, how it's special and different from the water in the well and how it's eternal, and she didn't understand that. But then Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go call thy husband and come hither. The reason the subject changes so abruptly is now he's going to help her to understand who he is. Go call your husband. And she replies, uh, the woman answered in verse 17, and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast 
is not thy husband, in that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She begins to elevate her mind, thinking he was a Jew. And why is she talking to him? Now she's thinking, he's a prophet. And she's beginning to understand that he's something more than just a Jew. And now she begins to talk to him because now he's a preacher. And she begins to throw out a subject, the subject of worship. And Jesus listens very intently and carefully to her talking about where she said they worshipped. But then he goes into a a several-verse discourse, very simply telling her at the end of that, of verse number 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And he talks to her about the true meaning of worship. She doesn't understand that either. Because when we come to the next verse, it says, The woman saith unto him, I know. Now there is something she falls back on. She threw out that subject of worship. Where do we worship? On this mountain? And the Jews say you worship on that mountain. Jesus answers her question and she doesn't understand it. So he finally, uh, she finally says to him, There's one thing I do know. What did she know? I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. Now, this is one thing that she did know. She knew that one day the Messiah would come and that he would tell all that she needed to hear and all that she needed to know. And that's where Jesus then reveals himself to her. Because the very next verse, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And at that point, she recognizes who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And he's the one that is coming to take away our sins. And she gets excited and she goes back to the city and tells all the people that she sees, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Those people begin to come to where Jesus is. But let me ask you a question. Where were the disciples? Well, in the first part of the story, we found out, kind of in parentheses, in verse number 8, the disciples were gone where? They'd gone to buy meat. They'd gone to take care of the master. They were buying food for themselves and for the master. That was their job. Hey, if I was them them and with them that day, I would want to really do my best at taking care of Jesus, wouldn't you? They were taking care of the master. That's a wonderful thing. To be able to walk with Jesus is a wonderful thing. So think about us today. What are we doing for Jesus? We may be enjoying the journey just as much as those men were that day. Walking with the Lord. And what a wonderful thing that was. And taking care of him and making sure he had his needs met. And they would have said when he was tired, okay, do you sit here at the well and we'll take care of the, getting the food? And they went back into the city. But what I find here is that the disciples may have been preoccupied with the details of walking with the Lord. And they were enjoying the journey, and yet they weren't quite yet focused on what they needed to see. Or in verse number 35, Jesus says to these men, Say not ye there are yet four months, and then, cometh, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. That's what these disciples needed. They needed to get their eyes focused upon the harvest and upon the needs of people around them. And so we see... Uh, from this story, that people have great needs. This woman had great needs. And I don't know the whole story, why she had five husbands, and and why now the man she's living with was not her husband. Maybe she was a bad cook. 
I don't know. I, I don't know her story. It could have been one of those where the men just didn't live very long. And back in those days, I mean, they didn't have the hospitals and the medications that we have. And, and just one after the other, she had married and, and it either it didn't work or, or that man passed away. It doesn't tell us exactly the situation, whether she was just a bad girl or whether just she had some bad circumstances in her life. But she, she had five husbands and that, that didn't work out very well. Now she's decided, well, they don't stick around very long for one reason or another, so I'm just going to not get married to this next one. Maybe he'll stick around longer, but that would have been a bad thing back in that day. How many of you are old enough that you recognize back in your earlier days that, that, uh, got, that men and women didn't, didn't divorce? To, to find somebody that was divorced was not common. I'm not that old, but I, I do remember people around me that, that, where that was not as common as it is these days. And uh, I don't know if that was her story at all, but she had a need, right? And there are people all around us with great needs that we need to see. And sometimes we overlook the needs in people's lives. Sometimes we just see the outward appearance. I tell you what, you guys look great this morning. You're all dressed up for church, and we've all got our smiles on, and we're singing and praising the Lord. But what's going on on the inside? I don't know. And, and you know, as a preacher, as a, I'm sure Brother Rice feels the same way. If we could just find out what's going on on the inside, sometimes we'd love to help. But we do know that there is one who knows what needs you have. And uh, I don't know what those needs are in your life. But there is one who cares and one who knows and who's able to help you today. And I'm thankful that even though we have needs in our life, that the Lord is able to help us. Amen? You see, the situation was this woman had great needs, but she's not the only one in the story that had great needs. I, I think of these disciples that are following the Lord. Here they are, they they have met the greatest person in the world, and at one point in their life, Jesus has said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Did Did that just instantly change them into the perfect believer? I mean, we look at those men, and one after the other, they're they're not living by faith, and they're saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll I'll die with you before I'll I reject you. And oh, that didn't work either. And they have great needs in their life as well. We all have needs in our lives, and even these disciples have needs. And what they needed to find out was that Jesus had a plan for them, and he wanted them to do more than just enjoy the journey with him. In fact, it was his plan that at one point, here not too long in the future, they are going to be the ones he's going to appoint to carry the gospel to the world. Imagine that. Imagine the Lord looking at somebody like me and telling me, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Why would he do that? I mean, I have limitations. I have inabilities. I don't, I don't speak all the languages of the world, right? I mean, I barely spoke English, and then the Lord wanted me to go to Japan and learn Japanese. And how do you do that? Uh, one thing I love to say about languages, though, we know there's... It, that our God's great because when he stirred the languages, he did a good job of it. He did a perfect job of it. You try to learn a foreign language like Japanese or Chinese, and you learn over and over again, our God's a great God. He, just, he did a great job when he stirred those languages when they all were talking the same language. But you know what? He can then help us to learn languages to get the gospel to people. And uh, these men had needs. They needed to understand in their life as a follower of Jesus Christ that there, was, there were more important things to be uh, concerned about. And 
that taking care of the master was okay. Enjoying the journey must have been wonderful to walk with Jesus. Hey, I'd, I'd signed up for that trip. There's something else. There's something else that God wanted them to do. And so he taught them day in and day out. He taught them in this story how important it was for them to lift up their eyes and look on the fields. I think of a missions month, and I think of a time that we all need to lift up our eyes and look on the fields. And you you have missionaries come through like the lanes last week headed for Honduras. I've never been to Honduras. I don't know what it's like to be in Honduras, but I'm thankful for, that the lanes are going. And I've, I've ne- I have been to New Zealand, where the friars came through, I think, a couple weeks ago. And they're headed for New Zealand. We've got a daughter and son-in-law that are missionaries there. And I've been there. I don't think it's right for missionaries to go to the foreign field and be able to preach the next day they arrive. When our, son arrived, our son-in-law arrived there, he arrived on a late Saturday night. On Sunday morning, he was preaching in the language of the people. I said, you're not a real missionary. That's not, that doesn't count. Uh, you have to go to a place like Japan and work for 10 years before you can preach and feel like you can get the burden of your heart out. And that's, that's what missions is all about. But uh, no, it's, it's taking the gospel wherever God has placed upon your heart to give people the gospel. We need to care about the need of people. Think about your neighbors, dear friends. Think about your families. Think about your friends that don't know the Lord. They have needs. And they need you to show them the love of Christ more than anything else. The love of Christ. The love of God is what constrains us to be able to work for Him. The love of God is something they need to see through us so that they can desire that same uh, thing in their life and, and know the Lord that can change their life. The Lord taught the disciples much, but the solution came when these men needed to notice one thing in particular in this story. Certainly they needed to lift up their eyes and look on the fields. At that point, I don't believe our Lord was looking at a, at a wheat field or a corn field that may have been on the side of the road. In the context of the story, I believe that those men that the lady was bringing back to where the Savior was were headed that way. And when the Lord said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, He was saying to them, here they are. You were in the city and you bought bread and you didn't tell them about me. You missed an opportunity. When they came out of the city with the food, they saw the woman talking with Jesus, but they weren't concerned about her. In fact, they looked kind of disdainful upon her and wondered, why would she be bothering the Savior? Doesn't, doesn't she know who He is? They probably just walked by, kind of looking at her and, and a little bit disgusted. Well, after the Lord reveals to them what's going to happen that day in Samaria, now the people are coming out and Jesus said, man, you need to lift up your eyes. You've got your mind set wrongly. He said, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? In the minds of guys like these disciples, they would have been thinking, oh, we have time before we get involved. We have time before we care about the needs of others. And sometimes we get to thinking that way. We get to live in our life, and we get to thinking, oh, there's plenty of time. When you don't know. You don't know when the last breath you will breathe will happen you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't put off knowing Jesus. You don't have a guarantee of another breath. What a terrible thing it would be to take that last breath and not be saved. The Bible describes what a lost person is in Ephesians chapter 2, and it talks about them being without hope and without God in the world. And that's what people are like who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're without hope. They're dead spiritually. 
They're without God in the world. How in the world can you live in this world without God? For our help and, and our, the sustainer of all things. Well, the solution is the Savior. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. What was one of the things these men needed to see? They needed to see Jesus in the harvest. What had he been doing? He went to that city to tell that woman about a Savior that she needed. About living water. And, and they, they needed to see the compassion of the Lord for people. How he went out of his way to give the gospel to others so they could be saved. They're focused on many things. Taking care of the master, walking with him, making sure he has enough to eat. But were they looking at the master in the harvest? Then they needed to see Jesus in the harvest as he says to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Now this is an interesting part of the story that we did not read. Because the disciples come back with the food. And when they offer it to Jesus, Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Basically, what they're saying in our vernacular, Jesus said, I'm a, I've already eaten, guys. Thanks, but no thanks. I have meat to eat that you know not of. And you know what those disciples did? They began looking around, trying to figure out who took their responsibility and who gave him something to eat when that was what they had brought? I mean, they'd gone out of their way to go buy this food, and now they've brought it out, and they're looking around a little bit disgusted. Somebody's taken our job. And they didn't understand something. Look in verse number 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. So in verse number 32 and in verse number 34, he uses the word meat twice. Why did Jesus use the word meat? Well, meat's what we need to satisfy our, our body. And he's talking about that because in the context, the, the disciples have brought them the food that he needs. And he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What was the one thing that satisfied Jesus more than anything else? In fact, more than food that satisfies our body? Doing the will of the Father. And going to Samaria that day was the will of the Father. Introducing this lady to her need of, of salvation and her need of Him was the will of the Father. And, and, and then uh, being able to see her coming back to that place, it had satisfied Him so much, He didn't even need to eat. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been to church? You've enjoyed it so much, you just decided, you know what, man, that was, that was great fellowship and that was great praising the Lord and great worship, and I don't even need to eat today. Well, I haven't quite reached that level of spiritual attainment. I don't know if many of us have, but our Lord did that day because doing the will of the Father was the most important thing to Him so that it satisfied Him so completely He didn't need that food. Though, physically, He would have been hungry. How important this shows us the will of God is for our life and doing the will of God. And so that was important. The lost needs of the, of, of the, the needs of the lost, the will of God, these things were important. But the final thing that I see our Lord in the harvest describing is, is in this last part as he's talking about the harvest. The, the harvest was, was very, very important to the Lord. And now he's directing the attention of the men to recognize their need. They needed to be involved in the harvest. Now, in lifting up your eyes, what was Jesus saying to them? Was it simply to become aware of the harvest? I don't think the Lord just wanted them to become aware of the harvest. He wanted them to become active. That was his plan. 
that not only would they see these men coming from the city, but they would take the opportunity to care for their soul, to give them the message of the Savior, to tell them about the gift of God, to get involved in this great work. In fact, uh, he didn't want them to just become interested in the harvest. This month of missions is not just simply for us to get our eyes on some fields like the Honduras where the lanes are going or New Zealand where the uh, uh, friars are going. It's, it's to get our eyes on the need for all of us to be not just aware of the harvest, but active. Not just interested in the harvest, but involved. And I remember a good friend of mine, Dr. Don Sis, saying about the harvest. He said, the problem of the harvest is, in most of our churches, we have people that have a token interest in missions. A token interest. Well, we may read passages like this, and we may, we may be concerned a little bit, but it's a token interest. He said what we need is not a token interest in missions. We need a total involvement. A total involvement. This that we're talking about right now is not a side issue, a possible suggestion for something that might be good for you to get involved with. We're talking about the command of God to take the gospel to the world. And all of us should be involved. Just as much as the lanes who are getting ready to go to Honduras. Just as much as the friars are getting ready to go to New Zealand. And I don't know who else has been here this month in missions. But just as missionaries are focused upon where God has called them to place the burden on their heart, as we were many years ago when God called us to Japan, He wants all of us to be involved. And all of us to recognize, not that missions is just someday somewhere over there far away. Missions is the world. Missions is the world. And right next to us, there could be family and friends, neighbors that need us to care. So what will we do? Will we love them to Jesus Christ? Or will we simply have a token interest in this idea of getting people saved and getting them the gospel message? God wants to use you, dear friend. God wants to lead you to get involved in someone's life that can make a difference. I remember going to Japan and God led us there to the central region of Japan for our first seven years. Thought we'd be there for the rest of our life. Learned the language enough to kind of preach. (laughs) Uh, We were still learning. Uh, And uh, an earthquake came. We were on furlough. We were due back in that area. Uh... February of 1995, in January of 1995, a 7.2 earthquake hit, hit, hit that area in which we lived that had become home, and about 6,000 people in that area died, second largest populated area of Japan. There was a lot of damage. It was really, really bad, but the Lord used that event to lead us away from that area. Our church family, we, the Lord led us to um, have them go to a neighboring church. And that church took over those people. And then the Lord led us to northern Japan, where we served for 15 years. And when we went north, I I called a a man who was the military pastor, uh, pastor of a military church in northern Japan. I said, God's burdened my heart about northern Japan. Actually, it was through another missionary who began telling me about his burden for northern Japan. And when he did, God gave me peace. And God began to lead us. And so uh, very shortly after that, I called up that other uh, pastor. And I said, God's called me to, to... to go to northern Japan. So if I fly up there over the next few days, I've got a week left in Japan before I go get my family. Would you take me around and show me the cities? And uh, he took us, 
to several places, and then we went into a particular city, which was the capital city of that area, a city called Almori, and it had 300,000 people. And when we drove down into the city, God put a burden on our heart and it gave me peace in my heart and said, this is the place I want you to go. Didn't know a soul. Didn't have a, the first contact. Didn't have the first name of anybody that lived there. But God had put a, a city in our heart. And we, then we went there and we began to try to reach people. That time frame that we went there happened in, in July of 1995. In March of 1995, a religious group called the Alms Supreme Truth had bombed the subways of Tokyo. Some of you may remember the stories years ago of several people being killed, several hundred being injured by sarin gas that was put in the subways of Tokyo. Well, that's what happened in Japan about that same time that we went north to start the church. So when we went north, they didn't want to have anything to do with religion. That's kind of the way the Japanese are. Anything bad, just lock it down, stay away from all of it, is the way they, they respond. And so we went, we went north to start a church, and we'd go try to find a room to rent to start our services, and uh, we couldn't find anything. They wouldn't let us, they wouldn't even deal with us since we were going to start a church. So we started in our home, we started meet, meeting and greeting people and reaching some children that would come for Sunday school in our home, and no adults would ever come. We did that for a year. And finally, we, we found a place that we could use and started our first services there in, in the city of Aomori. Very unique place. Uh, just before we moved there, I was getting a haircut in a neighboring city, and a Japanese barber said, uh, I heard you're moving into the area. I said, yes. He said, where are you moving? I said, we're, we're moving to Aomori City. He said, oh, you don't want to go to Aomori City. I said, why? He said, well, it snows a lot. I said, well, I've seen snow. I grew up in Hawaii, and my grandpa lived in New York. We stayed there a few months and saw him. So I've seen some snow in New York. Uh, but other than that, we didn't see very much. Uh, but he says, you don't understand. It snows a lot. I'm glad he didn't tell me how much. These are before Google, Google days where you could just look it up. Uh, I did not know that the city had 25 feet of snowfall every winter. Total snowfall on average. And 25 feet was a low period at that time. There were a couple of winters we had 30 feet of snowfall. So it was very unique. But we started our church, and, and it was, we were so excited. Another missionary family that, that talked to us about going north, they came too. Uh, he, was, he was in Japan for just a couple of years, and I was the veteran. And so we were working together. We finally got a room to rent, and we got it all fixed up. We had to tear the wallpaper off the walls and redo the wallpaper and it was a major mess when we found out how hard it was. But we finally got it all nice and, and spruced up and had our opening service and in, invited about 20,000 people to come. And nobody from our city showed up. Not one. We had 19 people there that day. Most of them were friends from, from a neighboring city or the other missionary family that we were working with and our families. And it really was not a very encouraging day. But we knew we were going to have to get out and knock on some doors and invite some people and try to reach people with the gospel. So we began to go knock on doors. And it wasn't very long before our first guy came to church. I can't remember exactly when into that process it started. But my girls were singing a special. They were seven, five, and two at that time. And they were singing a special. And they could, they could attract attention. They really could. They were, they were sweet. And they, they were singing a song in Japanese. And uh, nobody had showed up yet. That was Japanese. So it was two American families, and if nobody showed up, we just had church in English. But if anybody showed up that was Japanese, we switched to Japanese, and then we'd do the service in Japanese. So here we are, and we're, we're going through the order of our service, and it's special time, and my girls stood up to sing a song. 
And right as, before they stood up, a guy walks in the back door and he came down, sat on the front row. Now, that might not happen in most Baptist churches, but when you only have three rows in a small building, um, that's not too, <laughs> too much of a problem. So he came and he sat right on the front row. He listened to my girls sing, and while my girls are singing, the other missionary and I, we were taking turns preaching. And so it was his turn to preach. While my girls are singing, he taps me on the shoulder from behind me. He says, I forgot my notes at home. When you're in Japan for two years, you don't preach without notes. In fact, if you have notes, you don't ever look up. You just read it, one line after another, going like this, up and down, and you read your notes. Uh, But he forgot his notes, which meant to me immediately uh, that I was going to have to preach. So I got up to preach, and this fellow had just sat down, and when my girls finished singing, he stood up and he said, Bravo, bravo, bravo. Never had that experience before in church. And he sat down, and I came up to preach. And so I opened my Bible, and I opened up my notes. And I normally don't do this, but I told about the three points of my notes, and then I was going to preach them. So I, I told my three points, and I went back to go to my first point, and I caught his view of him sitting on the front row, and he was sitting there like this. I'm into my message now, right? And what do you do if somebody raises their hands? Well, I just... I, I acknowledged him, and that man, probably at that time in his 30s, he looked at me and he said, what is the Bible? Who is Jesus? What is church? And he knew so little that I just started answering his questions, and it was just a conversation between me and that fellow. And uh, after about 15 minutes, he had his questions answered. He stood up. He said, Domo, arigato gozaimashita, which means thank you in Japanese in a very polite way. And he walked out. Our first guy that ever came to that new church. And we didn't get his name because he came in late. And he, and he left early, so we didn't get his name on the way out. And they were praying all week long. Lord, we don't even know who this guy is. We don't know his name. We don't know where he lives. And so the other mission and I, we were praying one day on Thursday as we were going out and knocking on doors and, we're saying, Lord, would you bring this fellow back? Right in the middle of our prayer, there's a knock at the door. And there he was. And he came in and he heard the gospel. And he heard about Jesus dying on the cross and being buried and rising again. And just like a child, being willing to place his faith in Jesus Christ was such a precious opportunity. Fast forward a couple months when he says, Brother Harris, I'm not going to be able to come to church anymore. I've got to go back to the hospital. He says, I'm going to be there for two or three months. I thought, what kind of hospital is that? And I found out later it was a mental hospital. And because of depression issues, and whenever he had trouble, he'd go back in the hospital. They'd pump him up full of medication, keep him for several months until the feelings went, you know, were, were taken care of, and then he could go back home. And so he wasn't coming to church anymore. So I made some hospital visits to this mental hospital and did not know what I was walking into. And so I went to the ward and rung an intercom and told them I was there to speak to Mr. Hazama. And so when uh, they came and unlocked the door, it was a locked ward where he was. It was full of men. And when this face walked into a Japanese room with nothing but Japanese people, it was kind of like everybody's eyes got real big. And then I'd have people, all, they come up to me constantly, wanted to talk to me. The first fellow that would come up to me couldn't speak any English. But he wanted to use the English he knew. And the only, na- only thing he knew in English were actors' names. So he would run up to me while I'm at, still at the door, and he would stick out his hand, he'd want to shake my hand, and he would say, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, and he'd go through a bunch of names that I didn't, I didn't, 
I couldn't, he said more names than I could say, and actors' names, and that's what he would do every week I went there. And here I am, a missionary in Japan, having learned the language, started a church, and here I am in the middle of a mental hospital. I maybe fit better there, I don't know, but uh, I'm kind of arguing with the Lord. Lord, what? Nobody will come to church. We had five people who came to church in our first six months, and they never came on the same Sunday, and many times they never came but once. So it was oftentimes just our two fam- missionary families. And so I'd go to the hospital, and I'd meet with this fella, and one day I'm sitting there, there's eight, six, eight people in the room, and uh, they're all trying to talk to me whenever they get a chance. And so it's, you know, I'm looking this way and that way as this one says that. And, and there's this fella in front of me. He looks kind of weird. Uh, what, the reason he looked weird is he had a half-moon area of his head shaved off and a, a kind of a half-moon-shaped incision where doctors had put stitches. He had gotten away from the hospital uh, attendants and jumped out a window. That was his fifth suicide attempt. And uh, he was afraid of the world. Afraid of his drunk father. He was very, very wealthy and, and very uh, high-ranking in an, in an advertising company, but his dad would start drinking and, and would beat him. And He was afraid of religion. His dad told him to stay away from religion. He was afraid of the things that were happening in the news. And when he talked, he would kind of foam at the mouth. I found out later it was because it was Medicaid medication-induced, not demon possession, which I was glad of. Uh, but he, was, he looked terrible, and the dialect that he used, I, I, I could hardly understand him. And while I'm sitting there one day, it was like the Lord put a spotlight on that fellow. His name is Yamashita, his family name. And he, it's like the Lord encouraged me. I didn't hear a voice, but it was a, deep, a still small voice that the Lord gave me, and it said, love him. I began to argue with the Lord because I couldn't understand him, for one. I didn't like to look at him when he was talking, for two. I'm saying, Lord, how do you love somebody like this when you can't understand them? And I didn't know where to start. So guess what I did as a missionary? I said, Lord, what do I do? Guess what the Lord encouraged me to do? Give him a Bible. Uh, you would think a missionary would know that much. And so I went and I got him a New Testament, and I brought it to him with a Bible study. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I want you to begin reading in the book of Mark. For the Japanese, Matthew would knock them out of the water with the genealogies. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word word is with God, and the Word was God. If they ever could get through the end of that verse, they'd say, I don't understand that, and they'd close it and put it to the side. So we start with the book of Mark. Story after story after story of the power of Jesus and and, uh, the uh, miracles that he did, and we'd, we'd tell them to read the book of Mark. And so we started with the book of Mark and started with a Bible study. I said, I'll talk to you next week. So here's what I want you to do. Study this Bible study and read the book of Mark. So I went back the next week, and I said, I, I, I met him, and, 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 and I said, uh, well, did you do your Bible study? He said, yes, I did. I said, wonderful. He, I said, you probably took a, a question a day and worked on that a little bit at a time, right? He said, no. I said, so I said, what would you do? He said, whenever you gave it to me. I, I studied the whole thing that, that day. And so I said, well, what about reading the book of Mark? He said, I, I read it. And I said, well, you probably read, what, seven chapters? You read it every day? He said, no. I said, well, what did you do? He said, I read the whole, all, the whole book the first day you gave it to me. I found out he was in one of the top-level classes in the city of Alamodi uh, in, in the graduating, and he was extremely smart. And it was an amazing thing. I have to fast-forward through this story because it takes about a year and a half of going to see him every week, 
having the guy meet me at the door, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, you know, all of that. And uh, I can't get the guy to come to church. He's getting out on weekends and going home. His home is only about a 10-minute walk from my house, but he never would come to church. Until one day, after about a year and a half, he showed up at our house drenched in sweat. And what I did not know is his, some of his suicide attempts had caused him not to have any uh, sense of direction. And when he left, his, his parents would tell him, don't leave home without us. And, but he didn't want to tell them who I was and who he was talking to. And so he left trying to find my house with no sense of direction. An hour later, he found us. And when I saw him, he was kind of like panic-stricken, you know. As he was sweating all over. He was drenched in sweat. So we called him, had him come in. We sat down and talked for a while, and then I recognized I need to not have him walk home by himself. So I walked him back to his house. And when I, when I met the family, of course, the mother met me at the, at the door and just polite and kind. The dad wasn't that way. The dad looked at me and says, what are you doing with my son? He heard a little bit about me. And for the next two hours, I got a chance to talk to dad and give him my story about how God saved me when I was 11 and how he called me to Japan and wanted me to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And, and I said to him, I said, Sir, the Lord told me to love your son. That's why I'm talking to him. That man looked at me and he said, I've been a Buddhist all my life. He said, nobody's ever loved my boy. But I'll give you permission to talk to him. Two weeks later, the son got saved. He was waiting for his dad's approval what he's waiting for. That turned into an amazing story. It wasn't long, just a few weeks. I'd come in to see him after the John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart fellow out in front. We'd go back to a room and we'd talk. And he would tell me, he said, the doctors and nurses are trying to figure out what you did. And I'd say, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? He said, well, they say something's different. And they want to know what it is. And I'd tell him to tell them about Jesus and started instructing him about how he could be a witness. And so finally one day, none of them had the nerve to come see me. It was the head doctor of all the whole hospital who called me into his office. When I went into his office and was escorted to his room up in the top floors of, some of, the, uh, of the hospital, I walked in and the man had me sit down. He said, what did you do? I, again, I questioned him. I said, what do you mean? He said, we have never seen mental case cured in this hospital. And I told him about Jesus. I told him how did he told me to love this young man and tell him how that Jesus died for his sins and how he's buried and how he rose again. And that man looked at me like I was off the, the first ship from Mars. He had no clue. He, he, he said, I don't know what you just said. We have never seen this happen. They let him out of the locked ward. He went into an unlocked area, and they began talking with him. Eventually, he got out of the hospital because they said, you don't need to be here anymore. But while he was in the unlocked area, when it came lunchtime or breakfast, lunch, supper, he would be the first to the cart. And instead of getting the food for himself, like a lot of them would, he'd, get the, he'd, give, he'd take the trays, and he'd take them to everybody else and say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He would start witnessing to them. And every time I went to see him, He'd have some of his friends, and they'd come, and they'd start asking questions. It got so bad, we started seeing so many people saved, the doctor called me into his office again, and he said, you need to stop having your Bible studies in my hospital. 
I said, I'm not having Bible studies. My, I come to see my friend, and then people gather around, they ask me questions, and what am I supposed to do? And that doctor said, <coughs> uh, just be careful. All, all these families are Buddhist, and they don't like their kids to becoming Christians. And we, we saw God work in an amazing way. I give you that story to say, we need to love people to Jesus Christ. We really do. Sometimes we have tracts. And, and we know the importance of giving people the gospel, and it is good that we do that. But do we love them enough to give them the gospel? Do we love them enough to care? Jesus is trying to tell those guys, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. It's not enough for you just to enjoy the journey. Now it's going to be your turn. Go ye into all the world and, take the gospel, and preach the gospel to every creature. Do you know why we have the gospel today? in part because those men finally understood it. And they began to turn the world upside down after they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And because of their witness, we have the gospel today. What about someone in your life this week that needs somebody to love them to Jesus Christ? Would there be one? It's time for us to love them. It's time for us to care. It's time for us to pray. It's time for us to be concerned because we won't have this time very long. One day soon, we'll be gone. We need to do our part to get the world the gospel. Heavenly Father, as we bow close this service, we ask you that you will help us to lift up our eyes, to see the need and to become involved in your work. Lord, would you have your will and your way in our hearts today? Would you do something in the heart of every person here that we would all learn our place in the harvest and give the gospel as many people as we can and do our part to send missionaries around the world that they might be able to preach the gospel as well and we'll thank you for it in Jesus name so we stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed pianos playing he started out the message with for God so loved the world. You know, love is far more powerful than anything else. It's more powerful than hate. It's more powerful than anything else. God displayed his love, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life here on this world than to go to the cross take our sin upon himself why did he do that? because he loved us took our punishment took our sin was our sacrifice died and rose again so that you and I could be saved and I'm grateful for that love that he loved me Listen, he didn't just love me. He loves the lost people. He loves the people that have needs like that woman at the well. Oh, well, their life it might be full of sin. Well, it might be. But God loves them. That's why he came. He wants to see their life changed. If God's spoken to your heart, the altar's open.
We need to get the gospel out. We need to do it with the love of Christ. 